Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. If longtime Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath doesn't succeed in this year's election, will it be her last? We'll delve into that rumor. And after mass shootings that killed 10 people at a Buffalo supermarket over the weekend, it's an alleged hate crime now. What comes next as the investigation continues? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about today. The leaders' debate tonight, the Ontario election coming up on June 2nd, and uh, the leaders' debate tonight, uh, which you'll hear right here on this radio station, as a matter of fact, uh, starting at 6.30 this evening. And uh, the federal conservative leadership race is is ongoing. Uh, as you've probably noticed, a number of the uh, candidates for that job are making their uh, ways through the Sunday talk shows here on the side of the border. And, uh, well, there's some interesting comments about that. Uh, and also the reaction to what's going on with the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision about Roe versus Wade. That's having an impact on Canadian politics. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, of course. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, I'm thank- happy to be here. Nice to talk to you. Uh- I want to thank you. I want to, if I could, circle back and st- I want to talk about some of the conservative leadership candidates, and then we'll get to some of these other stories, because there's some interesting comments and some interesting reaction. I just mentioned a second ago that uh, even though the Roe versus Wade thing is is the U.S. Supreme Court, it's certainly having huge uh, reverberations on this side of the border. Uh, yesterday, uh, one of the leadership candidates, Patrick Brown, uh, was on the CTV news program and talking about this, and and basically trying to, I guess, reconcile his. Uh, conservative gravitas, I guess, and uh, bona fides. Uh, you know, is he an extremist? Is he a right-winger? Is he, and one of the comments he made here uh, was the he figured that, look, it, yes, uh, we have some radicals on the right-hand side, but everybody has a, a place in the conservative party if he was going to be the leader of that party. Um, is, is that going to do anything to placate some of the people that are concerned that the party has moved too far to the right? I mean, at this point, I think people are still getting to know Patrick Brown. And they're not necessarily sure, especially out of Ontario, where he's not a, not a household name necessarily, right? Like he, he's still really kind of doing a, I think, a meet and greet tour uh, up until when people start voting to get conservatives to understand who he is. And so it struck me that in the leaders debate last week, Leslie Lewis was the only candidate of the six of them who was pro-life, right, as she put it. And she tried to push the others where, uh, in terms of where they were, because the candidates know that, you know, even though um, there's a broad spectrum of people who identify as conservative, the social conservatism in the party, like that faction of the party is very powerful and tends to be, um, you know, very, very active in terms of donations. They're very active in terms of deciding where the leadership is going to end up being, right? And so even if we look to the last time when Aaron O'Toole won, it was largely because he had made those promises and had those meetings with people who Peter McKay didn't, you know, even though he was first on the first ballot. And so I think there's a lot of speculation around whether that part of the party will continue to be as as present and as active as it was as it has been in the past, I think at this point people are still trying to kind of pin Patrick Brown down and figure out what he's about. Well, and that probably goes all the way back to when he was, as you say, the Ontario Conservative leader, PC leader here, uh, because a lot of the stuff he was proposing that time was it was much different than the Patrick Brown, the MP, uh, you know, previous to that was was talking about. And we saw a little bit of that yesterday uh, during the, the discussion. Um, where he says he's pro-choice, but uh, you know he would allow other people with other views to be on there. 
Uh, and when asked uh, whether or not a bill restricting access to abortion uh, within caucus, in other words, a private member's bill would come up, uh, what would he do? And he says, well, I, I expect we're not going to have to go there. Well, that's not an answer. I mean, it, it can happen. You know, what's the, what's the stand on this? So there's, there's a little dancing going on here. And Pierre Polyev did the same thing, I guess, when asked the same question. said he believes in freedom of choice. Uh, which begs the question, I guess, Laurie. Well, what choices are out there? You know, if you if you do come forward with a private member's bill, an anti-abortion bill, then that's one less choice that women have to make. So that nobody seems to want to commit to this in in a big way, except Leslie Lewis, and that may not be uh, the 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 line of thinking that a lot of the conservative uh, participants in this contest are going to be looking at right now. Especially as you and I talked about last week, some of the uh, Former leaders of this party that have spoken out. Well, Preston Manning is not a conservative, but he is a small C conservative. Peter McKay and uh, Prime Minister Kim Campbell, former Prime Minister Kim Campbell, uh, was rather vocal and candid with some of her comments about some of the conservative uh, mm-hmm. candidates, and uh, including, especially, I guess, uh, Pierre Polyev. Uh, there's a there's a lot of people standing up right now and saying, look, don't go down this road, guys, or you're not going to win an election anytime soon. Uh, when you look at the polls here, Laurie, I, the you know Polyev is still winning. Oh, yeah. And so that's, I mean, you raise a bunch of points there, Bill. I mean, like, one thing is obviously this push and pull between do we want to win an election or not, you know? And so, like, when people like Kim Campbell are saying, like, come on, if you guys aren't talking about the environment, you're not talking about climate change, you're taking swings at the Bank of Canada, this is not serious. And so there are going to be people who have identified as conservative who are not going to want to be part of of a party that is, is, kind of taking aim at the independence of the central bank and talking about Bitcoin as though, you know, there's not a whole bunch of other things going on that you need to address. And so there's a risk here that no matter what happens, certain parts of what are now the conservative movement are not going to feel welcome there. And I think to the point about, you know, trying to dance around, that cannot last. Nobody can dance that long. Eventually, you've got to be somewhere. And, you know, Aaron O'Toole learned that you can say all the things you want to say, and then if you get what you win, they're not going to all reward you for winning if you don't do what you said you do. And so I think if, if anything, you know, that everybody should be really um, you know, mindful of what happened to Aaron O'Toole when he tried to say all the right things to the right people in the right rooms and then go and do something completely different. But there has to be, again, like the accountability for the party is around, listen, you can, you can say and do what you want, but it's not going to get you anywhere if it's not going to appeal to Canadians. And so the, I think for some people, there's a sense like, if they really want to build out on the right, is there enough space there to not try to pull to the center? But, you know, is there enough space to build a party on the right and to continue to pull, pull right? You know, given our electoral system, given the efficiencies of the conservative vote, is it possible for someone to form a government, even a minority, that doesn't actually resonate with where mainstream Canadian opinion is? But they all, even those that seem to want to even just edge it a little bit more to the center, uh, still have to pay homage to, to some of those extreme right-wing views. The Leslie Lewis is the abortion thing. Uh, who knows what else? I mean, you know, what, what might be on somebody's agenda, uh, you know, firing the Bank of Canada governor on and on, stuff like that. Uh, you, uh, now, Patrick Brown did chastise uh, Paulia for that stand, by the way, about the Bank of Canada governor. Uh, but the others are strangely quiet on a lot of this stuff. I mean, maybe they are starting to heed some of the warnings of, of the Peter McKay's and Preston Manning's to say, look, stop throwing darts at each other because it's going to come back and bite you no matter who wins this thing. Uh, but they, they don't seem to want to carve out a, a, a caricature of just what they want this party to be. And, you know, if, if you can't identify who you are and what you are, how can the Canadian voters do it? Well, that's it. And I mean, they really like I think to go back to your initial question about Patrick Brown, 
he in, runs the risk of seeming transactional. Like, you know, yeah, I'll say what I need to say in the room at the time, and I'm going to try to skirt away from any possible, you know, real clarity on where I am on the issues that are controversial. But it occurs to me that in some ways the part, the candidates are fighting so much because they're trying to define themselves in opposition to each other. They're trying to really stake out where they are as a conservative by showing that they find some other people who claim to be conservatives distasteful and not, you know, pe- people that they have things in common with. And so someone like, you know, it's not just that they're, di- they're disagreeing about, you know, certain aspects of policy or how fast we want to do things or whether we want to be open to some private, like there's, there's that sort of conversation too, right? Like they're talking about possibly more private delivery of healthcare in order to do things more efficiently. Like those sorts of things, they seem to be on the same spectrum in some ways. But then there's other questions that seem to really define the candidates in opposition to one another. So it's hard to see how all of these people are going to come around the same table when this is over, no matter who wins. Like that could be an impossible challenge for a leader. Well, and there's nothing, I guess, more frustrating than when, when politicians start to flip-flop. And, and I'll qualify that by saying I have no problem at all with a politician that changes their mind because they've got different information or updated information, sure. whatever the case might be. But, but Patrick Brown, when he was an MP, uh, just a backbencher, of course, under the Harper government, uh, was opposed to, to carbon taxing. He became the Ontario uh, PC leader. And I remember sitting in studio with him at that time, Laurie, just before that election. Well, he never made it to the election, as it turned out, but uh, is the leader of the party. But he said the people's platform that he put out there, which was their platform going into the election, he said he favored some form of carbon taxing. Uh, You know, it was going to be either cap or trade or whatever. Now, of course, on Sunday, yesterday on the program, he says he'd scrap it. So, uh, you know, who's he appealing to and what 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 are his thoughts on this, really? Or is he just, as you say, saying one thing to one group and another thing to another group? And the other thing, too, is he, I think his approach more than any of the others, as far as trying to build a strategy to win this thing, has been to really go and have those kind of quiet conversations with small groups of people at a time. And, you know, that's the way he's trying to do this. And so someone like Sheree has, you know, big name recognition. He's done all kinds of things politically and has different constituencies who are going to hear what he wants to say. Now, he's the guy who's sort of like, He's, he's more popular with Canadians than he is with conservatives. And so are conservatives going to give him the chance, knowing that he might have a better shot than some of the other candidates at actually winning an election? Because some people would jump from the, from the Liberals and Justin Trudeau to vote for Charest, because for some people that's not a big leap. And for some people it's just like, yeah, you know, I can remember when he was, you know, sitting there with Elsie Wayne when he was in his 30s and that was it, right? Like he's got mm-hmm. different ways of appealing. But yet he's like... Sheree is kind of a known quantity. He can't do the kind of flip-flop back and forth. And he's not doing the same strategy as Patrick Brown, going into rooms and talking to 15 people at a time. He's running a more national campaign. Whereas Patrick Brown, I don't know if he's as interested in, you know, he's going to do the Evan Solomon show. He's going to do that kind of thing because you have to do it. He has to build his brand. But his approach is far more, you know, one little step at a time. And so he might, that might give him a bit more runway to kind of say different things in different rooms, but it won't last. Like if he wins or he becomes, you know, if he, if he does well, he's going to have more attention paid to him around what do you really think about things. And so, and there's still three months of this thing after they yeah. all the members. So like, oh God, this isn't over. Well, and that's that's the thing that they, 
do they not understand that when he says one thing to one group and another to another group, those groups are going to get together at some point and oh, say, yeah. no, he said this, no, he said this. Whoa, hey, Patrick, what's going on here? Uh, and all the candidates, I mean, are going to have to come up with, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, but, and, and again, Brown repeated uh, to Evan Solomon what he's, I guess, been saying an awful lot through the campaign. I can, I can deliver the GTA uh, for, for this party, and nobody else has been able to do that. And there's some validity to that, too. Uh, I'm not so sure that he can actually do that. I mean, he is the mayor of, of Brampton, which is just on the outskirts of the GTA. That's that's there, uh, and he's a very popular mayor there. Uh, but he can bring new Canadians, as he says as well. So he's saying all the right things about attracting that. But at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, they're having, a, I think, a problem by trying to identify themselves. And uh, I think Canadians are noticing that. Just saw the Abacus poll over the weekend that says, you know, as we're heading out of the pandemic right now. Uh, Canadians' views on the three political parties haven't changed much since the federal election. Well, that's bad news for the Conservatives. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is even though sometimes they can have more of the popular vote, it doesn't turn into a win for them. Like the last two elections, they won the popular vote, and they knocked the Liberals down to a minority, but that's still, not, you know, <laughs> that's fine for the Liberals. The, the Conservatives still aren't in power. And so, yeah, I mean, there's the sense that, I think the other thing, too, is like, if you've got this existential cloud hanging over you, where the big question is, how is the party going to be able to stay together, given the divergence of opinion on fundamental matters? That's hard to get through, right? Like, at what point? And, you know, and this is, you know, this is a merged party. This is a party that held government under Stephen Harper. He's the only person who's been able to bring this federal piece to, to form a government. And so I think there's still that question around, is this a viable project? And, you know, that was a, even when he did it, it was a time when the liberals were completely collapsing. And it was a very, you know, the bloc was in a different space, like it was a different political per terrain then. So it, it all kind of exists in a system. And I think they're still having to prove that. They're still having to prove the viability of the project, which makes it really difficult for the leaders to position themselves, the candidates. Uh, Laurie, in a situation like this, and we remember, well, going back to when Sheree was still a federal member, of course, in the Mulroney government, uh, there was a lot of concern there about the way the party was going and the direction in the party was going, especially in Quebec, of course, and they broke off and became uh, the, the, uh, their separate entity, of course, the Bloc Québécois. And then we saw what happened, of course, with uh, Preston Manning coming out with the alliance and the, eventually the Reform Party. Uh, Maxime Bernier is sitting in the wings here. Uh, he's a former mm -hmm. conservative, and I would venture to say most of the people in his party are conservatives. Depending on how these guys shape up here and who's going to win this thing, you got to figure Bernier is sitting there saying, disenchanted, come on over to our side. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting he, that's going to put him into power, but he, he was a factor in the last election. You know, the People's Party got a lot more percentage of the votes than a lot of people expected. Uh, he could be growing that party by taking some of the discontented conservatives, I guess, uh, from the right and simply saying, look, you got a home here. That's it, right? And then that's probably sort of looking down the line a little bit. That's what Pierre Polyev is thinking about. What's going to be the dynamic? If Polyev does win this, what is going to be the dynamic between him and Bernier? Because if this liberal NDP thing holds and we don't have an election until 2025, like the upshot of Polyev as a candidate is that he's in the House already. Not all of them are. And so, you know, once if he was in the position to take the reins in September, that's going to be a big part of how the Conservative Party situates itself, itself because he's clearly extremely mindful of the vote lead to the PPC in the last election. And he doesn't want to see that happen again. I think that's part of what he's promising, right? Like Patrick Brown says, you're going to deliver the GTA. Polyev is saying, I'm going to bring back together the people who felt that we weren't conservative enough for them. That's, that's interesting that's the way it's... 
Yeah, it's interesting the way it's rolling out. Uh, that's our time, unfortunately. So much more to talk about. We'll have to do this again in a couple of days, Laurie. Thanks, as always, for this. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's political leaders are headed into the second debate tonight. Uh, NDP leader Andrea Horvath says the first debate uh, gave her a chance to examine her own delivery and demeanor. In other words, her, her, the way she actually handled herself through the debate. Uh, but she says that politicians can really kind of get stuck on their performance and forget that they're really there for the people. And it shouldn't be about Doug Ford or about Stephen Del Duca or about Mike Schreiner or about Andrea Horvath. It should be about the people of Ontario and giving them some hope that uh, that they can uh, they can have a, a government that's going to fix the things that are broken uh, and and take care of the things that matter most to everyday people. The uh, problem is, uh, with all due respect to, to Andrea Horvath, uh, people do pay attention to to performance and and what's said and how it's said too. Uh, and it can swing. As a matter of fact, uh, rumors around uh, Queen's Park the last couple of days uh, have indicated there's a, an extraordinary amount of pressure on Andrea Horvath. That's the uh, because of the, the great reporting and uh, investigative reporting that was done by our next guest, Sabrina Nanji, is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. So, Sabrina, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, happy to be here. Look, a lot of stuff to talk about about the debate. We'll get to that in a couple of seconds. But I want to, first of all, uh, talk about the the, the article that you've printed. You've done a lot of work, a lot of talking to a lot of folks uh, within the provincial NDP party. And uh, I I don't know if we should go to the extent of saying that Andrew Horvath's job and future with the NDP is on the line. Uh, But there's a lot of disgruntled people that don't necessarily want to mention their names. I mean, I guess they spoke to you on the condition of anonymity. But... uh, the, the waves of discontent are alive and well within that party, aren't they? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure, you know, Horvath, as we just heard her say, would like people to focus on the policies. Uh, but a lot of people are, are, you know, looking at her and saying to me that they can't win with her at the helm of the party. Uh, you know, it's Andrea Horvath's fourth kick at the can as NDP leader. She had an impressive showing, of course, in 2018, forming official opposition, getting 40 seats. But a lot of people are still, you know, smarting a little bit from that, saying, uh, especially because the Liberals were so decimated back uh, you know, four years ago, why couldn't the NDP pick up more seats and at least hold Doug Ford and the Conservatives to a minority position? That's kind of being revived right now. Uh, and I and I should point out, you know, that Andrea Horvath personally, she she's pretty popular. Uh, you know, the party does regular leadership reviews. She scored eighty five percent earlier this year, which is which is very impressive. Uh, and, and she tends to even poll sometimes better than her own party when it comes to popularity with the with the broader electorate. But uh, there's a lot of people who are upset with some of the decision making uh, that they lay at her feet and say, you know, the onus is, is on the leader. They've had their fair share of candidate controversies. Uh, you know, they've been third in in polls lately, although, you know, campaigns matter and it's still early days yet. But I think that's also kind of why I allowed people to speak you know, more candidly um, without giving me their names. Uh, you know, uh, we're in the middle of a campaign. Uh, emotions are running high. The people I'm speaking with, they believe in the NDP party, their policies, what they're putting on the table. They just aren't sure why uh, it, that hasn't really gained enough traction with, with voters in Ontario. I think, you know, it's it's not all on Andrea Horvath. A lot of it is a strong liberal brand, uh, you know, maybe 
not being able to capital and, and not being able to capitalize on, you know, some of the, the Ford conservatives mistakes over the pandemic. But a lot of people are, are blaming her for this. And so I'm still hearing from more people after publishing this story that are saying, you know, as soon as polls close at, at 9 p.m. Uh, on June 2nd, if Andrea Horvath doesn't take the premier's seat uh, at 9.01, they're going to start pressuring her to step aside. And this, that's what I was talking about, about a lot of pressure. They're not just hoping that they show well. Uh, she's got to get the top job, or the, I guess the, the knives are going to be out for them. Uh, and it, it, that's, that's an enormous amount of pressure. But as you say, there's a history here. And it's, it's really the same debate, I guess, that you know, the federal conservatives are having right now, isn't it, Sabrina? Yeah, do you want somebody who's going to stick to the, to the ideals and the, and the philosophy of the party? Or do you want somebody that can win? And, you know, when you take four shots at it, uh, it it's just kind of like the Maple Leafs in the playoffs. You know, it's nice that they're there, but, you know, you want to win if you're going to be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I, and I'm wondering now if maybe people will be paying more attention to the election after what we saw happened with the Leafs. But um, yeah, obviously, yeah. I'm seeing that from a political reporter's perspective. <laughs> uh, but, but you're right. You know, it's very rare that any political leader gets four tries, let alone five. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on Andrea Horvath. And, and you mentioned, you know, tonight's debate. I think that this is going to be a big moment for her. Uh, people are, uh, you know, uh, the, the pundits tend to be split on whether a debate can actually uh swing voters. But for those people who are maybe, you know, uh, not sure if they even want to go out to vote, uh, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of like apathetic voters just from, you know, talking to people uh, in my reporting, uh, people that are, you know, still deciding between the liberals and the NDP, which there are a lot of uh, people that, that actually want change, which there's not a huge number compared to past elections, you know, um, the desire to shake up the current powers that be. Uh, this could be a moment uh, for, for Andrea Horvath and of course, Stephen Del Duca and, and uh, the Green Captain Mike Schreiner. This t tonight's going to be all about the opposition. I think it's it's an opportunity for them to lay their pitches out. Uh, so you know, expect Horvath to kind of frame herself as the best person to lead government in waiting. Uh, whereas we kind of saw her a little bit weak on that front uh, in the Northern debate last week. You know, it sort of turned into Ford versus Del Duca uh, with Andrea Horvath trying to get in her jabs when she could. So certainly the, the stakes are very high for everybody. But Sabrina, as you point out in the piece, uh, part of the, uh, the the concern here, I guess, within the party, is is some of the internal bickering that's going on in the party. Uh, the Paul Miller thing, Hamilton East Stony Creek MPP, uh, who's won solidly every time he's run, of course, uh, basically was was booted out of the party. I, we don't get into the debate as to why, but he's running as an independent. Uh, there's another candidate, uh, and I know that a lot of people were supportive of that in the Hamilton area, but a lot of people weren't. Kevin Yard, another guy that you mentioned, uh, a very popular within the NDP caucus. He wasn't even allowed to get his nomination back. You, you figure that's supposed to be a rubber stamp for a guy that's already there in caucus. Uh, he was a very yeah. popular guy, former TV personality, of course. I, I, in the situations like that, I, what, what's your read on this? Do, do people that are that upset about that, do they go and vote for the other party or do they just not vote at all? Well, I think for a lot of people, we're probably talking a little bit of inside baseball here. But yeah. for, you know, card carrying dippers uh, in the New Democratic Party, they're uh, they're very upset. And, and it's not necessarily, like you said, you know, the details of what actually happened. Uh, you know, political parties at the end of the day are, are private entities. And so they can decide, you know, who they want running for them, who they don't want running for them. Uh, 
And, you know, they don't even really need to explain their reasoning behind this. The problem is bad optics. And a lot of people think that there were a lot of negative headlines, a lot of oxygen given to these stories day after day, uh, you know, and, and that's not a good look for the party. And they kind of lay that at, at Andrew Horvath's feet. I, I mean, on the issue of Paul Miller, uh, you know, Andrew Horvath was telling us reporters for days, uh, you know, we can't tell you why he's been booted. And of course, you know, that raises a lot of questions You and kind of media 101 is you don't raise more questions than answers and a lot of people are thinking well Andrew Horvath has been there for so long she should kind of know this by now uh, people are not happy with uh, Kevin Yard you know one of the few black MPPs uh, and we have the party who you know professes to be very dis- diversity minded uh, and, and she had her own caucus members sitting MPPs publicly calling her out not by name but laying this at the feet of the leadership so there's a lot of people who aren't happy uh, but you know we're in the middle of a campaign and so i'm sure that there's going to be a lot more dirt spilled uh on june 2nd the moments polls close on, on, at 901 because of course these new democrats aren't happy but they don't want to hurt their chances of, of forming government either so it's a bit of a tricky position to be in well and you and i've talked about this in the past and going back to that last provincial election uh and and the strong showing for the ndp and and you know we can always debate uh was it because people liked the ndp they liked andrea horvath or they were just so sick and tired of kathleen Wynne uh that they shifted their votes uh, and i guess one of the big questions that we're not going to find out until the first week of june is with those disenchanted liberal voters are they going to stay home or stay with the other party or are they going to go back uh to their liberal roots and uh Judging from the numbers, it looks like there might be a swing. Del Duca's not doing as badly as a lot of people thought, uh, but they're, they're both looking at uh, you know, Doug Ford's taillights here right now. And, you know, uh, is this a race for second place? Well, certainly, I think that's where uh, the most exciting um, politics is happening right now. You know, Doug Ford and the Conservatives, sometimes they'll go up a few numbers, sometimes they'll go down. But virtually every pollster is suggesting that, uh, you know, the Conservatives are on track to win it and, and even get another majority. And that's certainly just anecdotally what I've been hearing from voters I've been talking with. A lot of people are willing to forgive Doug Ford, you know, for some of the uh, mistakes he made during the pandemic. They they tell me, you know, he did his best. Uh, I think the onus is going to be on the opposition parties to kind of remind people about some of those unpopular decisions, some of the gaffes that have happened. Uh, I, I don't know if they've been successful at doing that. You know, we had a, a bit of a sleepy start to the campaign, and now uh, a lot of people are, or a lot of the political party war rooms, I should say, are, you know, bringing out their opposition research, bringing out these so-called candidate scandals. We know the Liberals had to drop two of their contenders, uh, you know, admittedly in writings that they uh, they really had no shot at winning in the first place, but it's still not a good look, especially for the new leader, Stephen Del Duca. Uh, but, but he's still he's still trying to uh, introduce himself or reintroduce himself to voters. And so I think that's what we're going to see from him tonight as well at the debate, you know, a bit of a re- re- rebrand. He's going to paint himself as the fresh face of the Liberal Party while his opponents try to tie him to political baggage, you know, of his own and, and of course, of the Wynn, Kathleen Wynn era. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, just some more a little inside baseball is that if Stephen Del Duca doesn't actually win premier uh, on June 2nd, he'll have his own leadership review. And so, you know, I think that that'll be a very big test for him coming up right after he's tested by the, the public electorate is that his own party is going to basically weigh in on his leadership and how they felt he did during the election. Uh, I think they'll probably stick with him and, and keep him around if he forms official opposition. Andrea Horvath, not so much. Well, and that 
groundwork seems to already be starting to be laid here, too. I'm sure you saw Randall Denley's column in the Ottawa Citizen the other day. Columnist, political columnist, of course, for the paper. Uh, says Doug Ford's uh, big edge in Ontario is his unappealing opponents. And, and, and judging from the way these numbers are looking right now, I mean, you know, Ford is kind of coming across as Uncle Doug with all the money, and I'll, I'll do this for you, and I'll build this for you, and, and it, it, which is not, not a, a brand new political strategy, but it, it's a different one than he used uh, the last time, when he, and he was successful last time with it, too. Uh, the others, as you say, Andrea Horvath's been around a long time, uh, but for some reason, you know, the people just don't seem to, to gravitate and, and see her as a potential premier, and Del Duca's just not known uh, so you don't know where this whole thing is going to go right now, but it looks like, I, I agree with you, the, the, it looks like Ford's going to cruise to victory here unless somebody can really uh, make some he heavy inroads. But when they don't know you and they don't think that you're going to be a good premier, how do you do that? Yeah, look, Bill, like it's still the middle of the campaign and I do think campaigns matter, but you're right. You know, what I think could end up happening is that liberal and NDP voters could hear, you know, what we're talking about now, what we're seeing in the headlines and pollsters say that Ford is on track to win it. And this could galvanize their voters. You know, they really need to uh, start uh, rallying people up, you know, getting out the vote, making sure people know how to vote, where to vote that sort of thing. And, and they need to target, you know, ridings that are, uh, you know, not only seat rich, of course, the 905, everyone's kind of gunning for the 905. We can see that just with a lot of motorist friendly policies coming from the, the Conservative Party. Uh, but, but they need to not only shore up their own seats, but, uh, you know, push for, for more territory. And I think we're going to see the campaign, especially between the NDP and the Liberals, you know, fought out in, in Toronto proper and also, you know, the surrounding areas. But of course, it's going to take a lot to kind of topple the conservatives at this point uh and you know don't forget we just went to the polls in september federally uh we're already ramping up to the municipal elections in october so i think you know there is a risk here of voter apathy too and uh people staying home uh that tends to favor the status quo and the powers that be so there's a lot at play here but i still think you know it, it feels like it could be anybody's game but certainly Maybe that's more of taking away a majority from Doug Ford and, and seeing who's going to be official opposition. As we watch this, uh, now we're listening to it later on tonight, depending on what we're going to be doing. Uh, who's going to, who's, I, I don't know about winning and losing, because that's usually in the eye of the beholder. But do, do Horvath and Del Duca and Shiner have to, to come out more aggressively? Do they have to go after Ford? Uh, because they've been going after each other right now. And, and you know, Ford's just kind of coasting down the middle. Yeah, and I think what we kind of saw in the Northern debate was that Del Duca was the one uh, getting a lot of attacks. I mean, even from the, the crowd there, you know, he was booed when he mentioned uh, the Northlander train that, you know, the party is now promising to bring back. But of course, it was canceled under the, the previous liberal government. So I think that we're going to see a lot less of that from Andrea Horvath is just from what I'm hearing behind the scenes. You know, she's going to try to uh, position herself as the level head while the other two sort of uh, maybe take jabs at each other. Of course, you know, Doug Ford's got his notes with him, but I, I am expecting some unscripted moments from him, of course, and, and we'll see the opposition parties try to get him off his talking points uh, by bringing up uh, stuff that we've seen him have a visceral reaction to, you know, uh, when he when we bring up the, the handling of the pandemic, uh, you know, you can almost see steam coming out of the premier or the, the PC leaders ears. Uh, and, you know, he promised to put that iron ring around long term care. And we all know what happened, you know, that that sector was just absolutely devastated. So there's certainly going to be opportunities to knock Ford off uh, his his briefing notes that he'll be able to bring with him. I think Andrew Horvath is going to try to paint herself as more of the the calm 
you know, steady hand that that is, you know, best positioned to steer the government. But of course, you know, we've all watched Question Period. This is still an emotional, visceral time right now. Uh, and so there's definitely going to be plenty of uh, uh, zingers to be had, too. But I think, you know, it's going to come down to are you really playing for official opposition or are you playing for government? And we're going to hear a lot of that criticism, I think, either way from from both the Liberals and the NDP. And I've heard that, and we saw a little bit of that, you're right, in the Northern debate about, you know, still trying to bring up pandemic issues, uh, you know, the, the shutdowns and the impact it had on economies, etc. like that. Uh, are people still clued into that right now, Sabrina? Or are they saying, well, what's that got to do with the fact that I can't afford a house? What's that got to do with I can't afford a tank of gas? You know, what are you going to do about that? Well, I think the pandemic is certainly a curveball. I mean, I, I think things have been kind of holding steady uh, right now, but I think a lot of people just personally kind of want to forget about it. Certainly, if the political parties had their way, we, we wouldn't be talking much about it. You know, they're uh, besides, you know, uh, railing against Doug Ford's record on this. Uh, we haven't heard much in terms of, you know, uh, uh, pandemic policy right now beyond, you know, of course, more funding for healthcare uh, and long-term care, uh, shoring up those systems, which is something the parties have been talking about, you know, since well before the campaign. So I think that, you know, a, a lot of people, especially with the weather getting better, us being outdoors, you know, even the public kind of wants to forget about this or at least, you know, uh, move on from it and, and start to get back to uh, you know, other very pressing issues. And of course, that's not to downplay, you know, what we've all been through for the last two two years and counting, really. But I think, you know, uh, that's going to be the moment uh, that's going to make or break Doug Ford at, at this point, whether it, you know, resonates with voters, whether it will impact at the polls uh, remains to be seen. But I think just generally from what I've been hearing from people, they're willing to, uh, you know, give Ford a mulligan on this, essentially. And, and of course, you know, the pandemic has really changed the conservatives and Doug Ford, you know, now they're promoting him as a yes man who is not afraid to, you know, make it rain billions of dollars uh, for, for what's needed. Whereas he kind of came into power in 2018, promising to cut, to cut the gravy as the, the fa Ford family likes to, likes to say. So I think, you know, uh, certainly we all want to be done with the pandemic, but that's not quite the reality. So we'll, we'll still be hearing more about it. Uh, interesting. I know we're just about out of time here, but uh, the polling that we just saw uh, from Abacus, I guess, the impressions of the party leaders and just about all three of the major ones, anyway, Ford, uh, Horvath and Del Duca, uh, as many people like them as don't like them. Uh, so as much as we say it looks like Ford's way out in the lead here, they, they've all got some PR work to do, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. It seems to be kind of a love-hate relationship with just about everybody these days. Uh, and so, yeah, tonight is like a, a critical moment for them to make their last pitch to voters and, and you know, paint themselves as maybe not likable necessarily, which, of course, you know, that that does matter. Uh, that does impact how people vote, uh, but also, you know, uh, really come up with policies that can resonate with the public. You mentioned housing. Uh, I think, you know, we might even hear less about climate and and green issues because I think people are uh, very concerned with like uh, more uh, maybe immediate uh, issues like in their day to day lives. And of course, you know, the environment is impacting on all of that. But I think that, uh, you know, especially what we're seeing in the polls, too, is that that issue is not as high environmental issues as it was in uh, 2018, uh, you know, in terms of people's priorities. So I think, you know, of course, even Green Leader Mike Schreiner has his work cut out for him, too, as he tries to mm -hmm. uh, grow his caucus of one. Exactly. As always, great reporting, of course, on the uh, the NDP story. Uh, Sabrina, enjoy the debate tonight, uh, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks for this today. 
Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a deadly weekend south of the border. Uh, shootings in Orange County, California, Houston, Chicago, Milwaukee, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, with fatalities involved in all of them. But uh, the focus right now uh, seems to be the horrific tragedy, of course, that occurred in Buffalo uh, with the 50-round shot, uh, 10 people dead, uh, a number wounded, of course, and somebody is in custody. Uh, joining us to talk about this and uh, other news uh, from south of the border, pleased to welcome Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News. Reggie, thank you so much for the time on a very busy day in uh, the nation's capital. Appreciate it. Good morning. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the, the administration, the Biden administration's reaction to, to this deadly weekend and specifically to the Buffalo situation. What, what are you hearing? Well, I mean, look, the president, uh, you know, spoke over the weekend uh, in person and uh, the White House had issued a statement where he was, uh, you know, issuing his condolences to the families, uh, saying that uh, that these these race based hate filled uh, incidents that continue to occur across the country need to come to an end. But what's interesting, Bill, is that the president and the administration so far have not gone as far as talking about gun control. This is uh, an administrative issue that was a big campaign promise from President Biden. It has failed uh, significantly in both the House and the Senate simply with not uh, enough support. And instead of trying to drum up the politics around what is, you know, a frequent situation in the United States when we see these kinds of mass shootings. The president is opting to go the way of offering the quote-unquote thoughts and prayers, which is the same that we're hearing from a number uh, of members uh, of Congress, because it's easier to offer those thoughts and prayers than it is to come up with answers to stop having to say that. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was looking for something. I thought, well, maybe I've just missed it uh, because you're absolutely right. Biden, the candidate, made a big deal about gun control. And he's even talked about it uh, since, of course, he, he started in the White House a year and a half or so ago. What's your read on this, Reggie? You've been following these guys for a long time. Is is the silence on the gun control issue uh, because he's afraid the might be a pushback of a, a political opportunism? Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, look, there's just not enough broad support in the United States. Over the weekend, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, was on the Sunday show saying that, you know, Democrats aren't going to go anywhere. This is going to be a front and center issue among the many uh, until they're able to get this dealt with. Uh, but big change, big push to move forward when it comes to gun control in the United States is uh, a hurdle because despite the fact that the NRA doesn't have, uh, you know, a lot of its act together, it is crumbling financially, it canceled its uh, its massive convention last year, it is still a powerful lobby group. It still does give those grades towards uh, the lawmakers that are for and against uh, gun rights and gun control. Uh, and, and getting something done can be difficult. You know, this is a country that is still trying to deal with uh, expanded back background checks or making it impossible to go online and buy an assault rifle uh, and amped up uh, ammunition and magazines. That's stuff the president wants to get dealt with. He can't do it because it meets resistance. Uh my understanding is, just trying to get an update this, I was checking just before we went on air at 9 o'clock, uh, the president is going to visit the Buffalo area in the next couple of days? He is. Uh, the president uh, is expected to be in Buffalo tomorrow, and much okay. like presidents in the past when it's come to uh, a situation uh, of gun violence, they typically try to wait a few days because there's obviously a large presence that comes with the president, and they don't want to get in the way of the investigation. But... Uh, you know, this is going to be that opportunity for the president to go and meet with the families uh, of the victims, of which there are 10. 
Uh, which brings to mind, of course, uh, well, some of the past tragedies. And uh, I remember President Obama's uh, uh, really moving speech, of course, at Sandy Hook uh, in light of the tragedy, where he did bring up uh, the gun control issue. I'm, I'm just wondering if Biden may wait a couple of days and do it then, or if it's just maybe too politically sensitive at this stage. Because there, as you mentioned, Re Reggie, there's so many extraneous factors here. Uh, it's gun control, mental health issues, uh, certainly racism all come into play here. Yeah, absolutely it does. Uh, and this is the kind of, it's the moment that the president has to grapple with is which one of these is the most important to deal with, especially when you're on the ground with the families. Yes, the families want to see these guns off of the grounds of their cities. They want to see people who have no business holding uh, a war-style weapon not being able to get one. Or is it the president's opportunity to act as consoler-in-chief and try to uh, make it seem like things are going to get better because he's going to continue to push? You know, politics really plays into the emotions here, but this is just another chapter in an American story that is kind of never-ending. And, you know, while we have a shooting that occurred over the weekend, one of many, as we heard in the news just there, according to the Gun Violence Archive in the U.S., 198 mass shootings have taken place in the first 19 weeks of this year. So this is the president's opportunity to go to one. How many more are there going to be when there have already been 200 is the open question. Well, and there's a law and order, I guess, issue here, too, because this this guy was known to authorities, wasn't he, Reggie? I, uh, he had threatened, apparently, to do this at a school that he was attending uh, a year or so ago, and I guess the authorities sat down with him at that point, but uh, not much was done about it. It, and didn't flag that, and that wasn't enough of a red flag to put him on any kind of um, uh, of no-sale list. Uh, and, and, you know, when again, when you've got expanded background checks meeting uh, political resistance uh, in Washington and really from coast to coast, uh, you know, it can make it more difficult to stop somebody from being able to uh, procure a gun. Now, obviously, uh, being 18, having been on police radar, there are going to be conversations that take place with the suspect's family to see whether or not there, there may have been any red flags there or any kind of assistance there. This is going to be a part of what is going to be an incredibly long investigation that still uh, needs to unfurl. But when you hear the, the governor of New York say, look, he was carrying an AR-15, it was purchased legally, that raises questions for some people. But then she says he was carrying the high-powered magazines, which were illegal in the state, raises a second set of eyebrows amongst people. Well, breaking uh, just about every minute here, we're hearing new things about this as the investigation continues, and we'll certainly be watching for your reporting on that over the next couple of days. Uh, let's shift, if we could, to a couple of other things, uh, including Ukraine, uh, which is still on everybody's radar. Uh, even Mitch McConnell apparently was over there talking to uh, the Ukrainian president over the weekend. Uh, but I guess the, the big news about that particular issue is, is the announcement from Finland and Sweden uh, that they're going to join uh, NATO, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, number one, the fact that we had a Republican delegation over in Kiev, uh, you know, not long after we had a Democratic delegation over there, but still have not seen President Biden over there amidst the, the flurry of leaders that have shown up. It is raising questions. Why is the administration holding back the president when the United States is actively moving so uh, aggressively in, in providing funding? That That's a question that's still to be answered. On the NATO front, yes, this is a big deal that tomorrow we could see the dotted lines uh, signed by both Finland and Sweden to end decades-long um, neutrality uh, when it comes to, to this military uh, alliance. The Kremlin is saying, look, this is a big deal. We don't want to see NATO expanding. You know, we may be forced to retaliate, but the experts I've talked to uh, have said, look, Moscow may use words to retaliate. They're not going to do anything to escalate the situation. And why is that? Because Vladimir Putin understands he's in a good position in the leadership role that he has and in the lifestyle that he has. 
he's not going to go any further that potentially puts Moscow in some kind of uh, you know, uh, militaristic firestorm. So there, there's going to be rhetoric and anger out of the Kremlin, but ultimately there's also going to be a sense of fear and hopefully calm amongst NATO now that they're being able to expand. Reggie, aside from the obvious uh, reasoning, the threat you know that Russia poses to both these countries and what they've seen happen in Ukraine, uh, did the U.S. have a hand in this? I know Antony Blinken had, had some uh, numerous discussions, I guess, with both governments, but a lot of that was back-channel stuff. But I would imagine they were, would be urging those governments to, to make this sort of a move. And uh, as kind of the big dog with uh, with NATO, uh, tried, as you mentioned in your reporting, try to expedite their their inclusion as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the United States may have uh, been trying to push that, you know, snowflake to become the snowball to say, look, this is a big deal. Uh, you know, we're, we're stronger as, uh, as a big group than we are as a kind of a fragmented group. Uh, but ultimately, as the White House and as we've heard from the prime minister as well, uh, each individual nation's decision to join NATO is, uh, you know, is that of their own and they will do what they think is best for their people. But given the fact that we have seen Russia acting more aggressively, Russia shares a border uh, with Finland and is incredibly close to uh, the northern fringes uh, of Sweden, uh, both of these countries just feel that it is now time to, uh, and you know, given the fact that they have the support from within their populations as well, is also important here. But this is the moment for uh, for the West to continue to stand uh, allied with each other. It's going to potentially take you know weeks, months, if not a year, before anything is fully put together and, and NATO is ultimately expanded. This will have to be debated amongst uh, the group. But this is a big deal for a Western alliance that has shown that it will not back down. And from a strategic standpoint, I mean, here's Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare again. He's got NATO troops staring at him from across the border, and that's a long border, 900 kilometers or something, uh, which probably was, as we now know, of course, part of the motivation for him going into Ukraine. Uh, he's not going to open up anything on the second front here, but you do have to wonder when he uses the word retaliation, uh, just what that would entail. Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, d does does Russia have a massive nuclear arsenal? Of course they do. Do they probably keep their nuclear arsenal in better shape than we've seen them keep their frontline artillery uh, in the war in Ukraine? It is probable, but again, uh, it would be a, a, a kind of a difficult and potentially ending decision for the Kremlin to move forward with some kind of nuclear, um, you know, attack to push back on any potential NATO expansion here, because they went into Ukraine, you know, it, it went against what the rest of the world wanted. This was what Russia ultimately wanted to do. Russia has, for the last three months, done nothing to put themselves in a, posi a position of walking into uh, a NATO country or a secondary or tertiary neutral country. So again, this could be just rhetoric that's coming out uh, of the Kremlin. There is reported disarray in and around Vladimir Putin right now. So you know, it, it's an ultimately unknown question as to what happens once the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed with Finland and Sweden. Exactly. And we'll see what Putin's reaction is going to be. Uh, as you've been reporting for some time, and, and because of the importance, of course, the midterm elections are coming up in November, uh, which could swing the power structure in, in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, of course. Uh, and, and a few names are coming up here. I guess one of the underlying questions that you and I have been talking about, Reggie, is just how much power uh, does Donald Trump still have with the Republican Party? How much sway does he have? And, and I guess the situation here with State Senator Doug Mastriani I guess, in Pennsylvania uh, is going to be a key part of that. He's, he's, I guess, one of the strongest Trump acolytes, and uh, he's making statements that would, I, I, I guess, really put him back into the headlines right now. Are the Republicans comfortable with that? Because this is a Trump guy through and through. 
This is a this is a definite uh, Trump guy. Um, uh, this is uh, uh, Republican Senator Mastriano looking to to take the helm as the governor uh, of the state here. Um, he, he stands behind Donald Trump not only in kind of uh, the, the the way that he presents himself with you know the Republican stance, but also in the kind of nonsense that we've heard from Donald Trump for the last several years when it comes to issues around the 2020 election. And this is also a gentleman who's been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee for his role and attendance at the attack on the Capitol uh, on January 6th. This is someone who the GOP fears uh, with uh, a ringing endorsement from Donald Trump could potentially um, separate the Republicans. It could give uh, more of an opportunity for Democrats to get off their seats and come out in an election year where they are not expected to come out uh, as much. The GOP is genuinely fearful in a state that they are desperate to win to try and gain some kind of more stronghold in the United States. Um, this could be a, a kind of bellwether here to show whether or not Donald Trump's endorsement is going to go far for the GOP or whether this is going to benefit the Democrats. Well, and for people that might say, hey, I kind of know that name. Well, he was one of the key figures in the Pennsylvania uh, recounts and, you know, the fact about, you know, the, the, the false votes and the false numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And, and well, lest we forget, of course, it was it was that Pennsylvania situation when it was finally resolved uh, that, uh, that shoved Biden over the top and, and of course, uh, got the presidency. They finally, uh, when they finally authorized those votes as sincere, but uh, he has never given up on this. He's been a strong advocate for this. Uh, and I know that, I mean, Trump's got other allies, you know, DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas, among others. Uh, but this guy takes it to the next level. And I guess that's what some moderate Republicans are looking at right now and saying, do we really need this? Well, and look, there's trickle down from this as well. This is just for uh, for the gubernatorial race uh, in Pennsylvania, where you have a Trump endorsed Republican potentially stoking fear amongst the party as to, you know, is this going to do damage for us, at least when it comes to the overall governor count? Uh, this could trickle down to is the Republican Party now fractured when it comes to uh, races in the House and in the Senate? And, you know, we have to remember, Donald Trump gave his endorsement to Dr. Oz, uh, who Republicans are already generally fearful of thinking that he is too much of a Democrat hiding behind the cloak of a Republican. Well, at the same time, there is a now kind of up, you know, coming up the middle candidate who the Republicans definitely fear and do not want to be uh, in a position uh, of being the, the Senate candidate up against the Democrat because they feel their chances of losing to the Democrats are now going from potentially the governorship to also a key Senate race that could also help determine um, the control in Washington. So there's a lot of fear here amongst the Republican Party that this kind of kiss that Donald Trump gives to certain candidates and doesn't give to others is is splitting and fracturing a party that's already kind of dancing on do we need to stay the current Republican Party or do we need to kind of start flying further to the right? Well, and for those that may say, well, why should the president of the United States worry about who's going to get elected governor in Pennsylvania? Uh, as you've reminded us, Reggie, uh, even though it's a federal election, uh, states control the election in each one of their states. Uh, and governors and, and those bodies can change the rules. They can change the districts. They, they can have a great deal of influence over uh, what can go on this state, and, uh, and which is why the concern here is about who's going to be in the governor's mansion. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when we are awaiting a key decision from the Supreme Court on abortion rights in the United States, where governors are ultimately going to be left with the control if Roe v. Wade is struck down, they are going to be the ones who dictate whether or not their state will or won't allow abortion. And to have somebody who is, uh, you know, heading closer to the far right of the spectrum 
sitting in the governor's mansion uh, in Pennsylvania could potentially spell uh, issues for women across that state who are looking to grab an abortion. So there are huge ramifications for whichever party ultimately gets power, which is why the White House uh, is watching closely, because they need as many uh, Democratic allies as they can right now, just given how razor thin uh, their majority is. And ultimately, Biden's agenda is on the line if there are fewer Democrats in office. Exactly. Very important week in Washington. Look forward to reporting on it uh, for Global National, as always. And thanks for the time today, Reggie. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News down in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.